Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. In a week that's seen the publication of the long-awaited Russia report proving that though the Cold War ended around 30 years ago, there is no aberrant trend for which the Russians can't be blamed. Indeed, I have evidence that shows Manchester United lost to Chelsea at the weekend because of Russian interference with their goalkeeper. Cybersecurity has shot up the agenda uh, like a hefty ICBM. And in our world, figures revealed by pensions experts showed more than one data breach has occurred every week for the last two years. Given the extraordinary quantity of data held by pension schemes, we'll ask how serious the problem is and what can be done about it. Sticking with data, public sector pension schemes face the Herculean task of grappling with the government's proposed solutions to the McLeod problem. Uh, we'll explore one or two of the challenges they face. And finally, since we are contractually obliged to remember that coronavirus is still about, we'll look at its impacts on recovery plan end dates and deficit repair contributions. My name is Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by Maurice Titley, director at ITM, and Linda Whitney, partner at Aon. Thank you both very much for joining me. Beginning with data breaches, our own dearly departed, uh, to another publication, I should say, not to death, but our own dearly departed Oliver Telling did sterling work obtaining data uh, the legal way from the Information Commissioner's Office, which showed that since May 2018, there have been 156 data breaches affecting pension schemes, including uh, the Pension Protection Fund and Aviva. 11 were caused by fraudulent cyber attacks. 27 resulted from security issues. The rest were nebulous, unnamed, or the results of errors. Uh, if I could begin with you, uh, Maurice, I don't think people generally know exactly how much data is held by their schemes. So um, just to begin with, I wonder if you could give us a broad sense of how widespread this problem is or how potentially widespread it could be? How much data do pension schemes really hold about their members? Well, this was a question that came up in, in quite some detail around the implementation of GDPR. And one of the areas that was focused on was the extent to which pension schemes are allowed to hold sensitive data that may not actually be entirely relevant to their purpose. For example, where pension schemes hold files that have been inherited from employers that might hold information about an individual that somehow is squirreled away in there and, and nobody really knows what it is and, and can get to it. And I think at, at that point in the big GDPR debate, there was a lot of pragmatism that came in to say, well, look, at the end of the day, where pension schemes have this sort of information that is very inaccessible and held in ways that can be pretty hard to go through and review, then that just has to be accepted and they have a right to hold this. They have a purpose for holding this information. But I think what that does mean is they hold more information than perhaps you might think, particularly going back over the legacy data. And the huge quantities of data that are not actually stored on the primary administration system can be quite eye-opening. And then, you know, we certainly work with clients where we have to make use of scanned images quite regularly in terms of carrying out data work that needs to be done today. So there's huge quantities of data there. Some of it is not necessarily data that you would expect to find there. So there are undoubtedly risks. But there was a lot of pragmatism that followed the implementation of, of GDPR and accepting that schemes have a right to have that data. But of course, you've got to look after it and make sure that breaches are absolutely minimised. And if I'm just sticking with you just for the moment, I mean, when it comes to that pragmatism and those that level of security that you have to hold, is this something that trustees are generally aware of or indeed capable of, given that it's quite a complicated issue, GDPR and all related matters? Are trustees ahead of the game in this or is there some catching up to do? I think trustees will remember the whole GDPR implementation process very well. There was a huge amount of work done over that. And I think one of the points that was made in, in your article, which is a very good one, is that it has faded in the memory 
and we're left with a lot of good procedures and good processes. But I think trustees are as aware as anybody that at the end of the day, administration and trustee work and advisor work is carried out primarily by human beings. And human beings do make mistakes when it comes to passing data around. And how you can protect against those mistakes is absolutely key for trying to avoid some of the breaches that you've been reporting from your, your article. You know, I, I think there, there is no doubt that the vast majority of those are going to be accidents. To what extent can you help control accidents and have systems that will flash up warnings or prevent individuals from sending emails with, with data in them? Um, I think that's key for schemes to be looking at. And I think that some of the best run schemes will have some very good protections at their administrators to try and, and stop the human error happening, but you're just never going to remove these risks entirely. Linda, I wonder if you wanted to come in with a take on this area. Yes, I think it's important to think about how that data is transferred. So particularly within the trustee board itself, we're seeing more and better use of electronic uh, mediums, electronic board packs, and those sorts of routes to try and make sure that data is held in a secure environment and not emailed around to somebody's personal email account with whatever virus protection they might have as a trustee. And it's that sort of thing that it's all small incremental practical steps to try and make sure that you're as cyber secure as you can be whilst still actually operating in an efficient manner as a scheme. Uh, but I think one of the difficult aspects is knowing what data that you do need to hold. And schemes are struggling at the moment with projects where they are being asked for data that they never expected to uh, need. So if you think about GMP equalization, for example, we're having to trawl back through to data in the 1990s that nobody expected to, to need to look back at again. So it's very hard to know what is the right data that a scheme needs. Brilliant. Well, if, if we're sticking with the data subject, then I think our next topic was uh, related, although perhaps somewhat less well, contentious maybe in a different way if, we, if we're moving on to the McLeod uh, issue. Uh, the government published its consultation, uh, it would be last week now, um, and there are, as I understand it, two proposed ways around the problem, both of which are rather expensive, however you look at it, but more importantly for the, the purposes of data, a lot of data is involved in it and it's going to be quite difficult, as I understand it, for, for some trustees and schemes to keep track of all the affected members. So, Linda, if I could begin with you, on this, I mean, what's your what's your take on the government's consultation uh, and its impacts? I think there is a real administrative challenge here. Uh, you're talking about probably a million more members of the local government pension scheme in scope. England and Wales alone, uh, let alone the other pension schemes that are they're impacted by this. And there is a lot of for people to look at. Uh, for those who don't know the background to the McLeod case, this was the situation where the government made changes to the scheme, uh, moving to a career average uh, scheme, but giving significant transitionary protection for older members. And that's turned out to be age discriminatory. So now we're looking back over the last five years and looking at the situation where members are potentially going to be given 
given the choice between the final salary scheme and the higher accrual in the career average scheme. So a huge exercise to potentially look at what would be the better situation for the member and an interesting question of whether that is done for them or whether actually member choice is involved in the process to try and avoid this this age discrimination concern that has come up. But, you know, a massive exercise to try and look at one benefit design against another with the benefit of hindsight over a five-year period when you didn't keep that information. Sure. And if I can just stay with you on, on this for the moment, Linda, I mean, the, the background, I think, is, is quite interesting. It's, it's been branded variously an, an entirely avoidable own goal. And I think somebody at the, the IFS today may have been said that it's just evidence of, I think he said it's the, it's, it shows that competence in government is important. And I think the implication there being that there wasn't any. But I mean, how exactly has this this come about? Was there a way in which this could have been avoided? Because I think everybody would accept the need to equalise. But accepting that need, is this the only possible way they could have done it, given how expensive and, and costly it's turning out to be? And I think it's a question for a lawyer, really, as to whether it was obvious in the first place that this was age discriminatory or not. I think it's a a tricky situation where you've got, on the one hand, unions trying to protect their members and saying, give as long a transitional period as possible to protect people who are closer to retirement, who have, have therefore sort of banked more on that current final salary scheme benefit compared to the, the younger members who were being moved on to the new regime. So, so whether it's avoidable or not, I think is, is a difficult call. In terms then of, of how to fix it, I think, you know, what they're proposing, you know, it's a massive administrative challenge. And regardless of how you're actually going to implement that, the detail of that, just knowing what, for example, full salary details, pensionable salary details, et cetera, have been and how they would have applied with sort of slightly different definitions in the two schemes, et cetera. You know, it's, it's a real challenge administratively and, and for the data. Sure. And, and Maurice, I wonder if you, if you had a take on this. I mean, I think we've acknowledged that some of the, the large number of challenges involved in, in this process. I mean, it is, challenges tend to be challenging by definition. Uh, how... how long do you think this process is going to take? Are there going to be more problems emerging as, as time goes on, do you think? Well, I, I think that the process of, of preparing to implement the remedies that, that have been set out, I, I think, should start now. I think that the consultations are obviously really important, but certainly some of the, the work that we've been doing has been looking at the local government pension scheme around the impacts of McLeod and trying to identify members who are likely to be impacted in a material way. And as Linda was saying, one of the big challenges of this is to collect additional data. And that process, in a way, needs to happen pretty quickly And in some cases because you might be dealing with um, payrolls or employers that simply might not be around or, or may be um, deleting the data that you need. So I think it's important to get on with, with getting the data as soon as possible. It's a very different shape problem when you look at the unfunded public service schemes, and you look at the um, local government pension scheme, for example, they have very different issues and very different complexities that are going to have to be taken account of. But in both cases, it is going to take time to to work through this. And the dates that have been set for implementing the new scheme going forward um, are going to be the key dates that everyone will focus on in terms of when that work has to actually get completed by. 
And there's a long process there because, as Morris points out, you've got the data collection, but then you've got, you know, backdated pension calculations, changes to the ongoing administration process that requires potentially systems and platform changes. And that's all before you ever get close to actually communicating with the individual member about what's happening. So you can see that there's quite a project there to take you through that whole kind of process. Sure. And, and Morris, I mean, I understand you've been quite sort of involved in this area previously. And, and one of the, the comments we kept hearing from people when we, when we were doing work before the consultation was published is that schemes did not need and indeed should not be waiting for things to happen. They should be doing preparatory work, as I think you mentioned. Um, I wondered if you wanted to explain just in a little bit more detail what some of that preparatory work entails and what work you've been doing with your clients and schemes to, to get themselves really ready for, for what comes next. The, the work that we've done so far has focused on LGPS, and we've been carrying out assessments to identify deferred and pensioner members who could be impacted by McLeod and also doing projections for, for active members. Because, of course, for, for active members, whether you end up being impacted eventually will depend on what happens to you in the future. And I think that one of the interesting points in LGPS, which is no surprise to them, is that the actual percentage of members who are impacted looking looking back from now is actually very small. And there are technical reasons why that is the case because the, the career average scheme has a, a preferential accrual rate to a, the, the final salary scheme. And, and therefore, in a period of low salary inflation, you don't have that many people that have been impacted looking back. But looking forwards, it's a very different picture. And what we've been working with clients on is to say, well, let's identify the set of members that you need to go out and collect data for now. And let's try and restrict that set as much as we can, because it's all very well sort of saying, please give us data going back five years and just thinking that that's the end of the process. But unfortunately, as, as we know from work in, in LGPS, when you do collect data, it requires a lot of validation and it's not all going to be what you expect it to be. So I think restricting that problem and focusing on the members you absolutely need to focus on is, is key. We're also looking now at wider public service schemes and, and the considerations are, are quite different. And I think the, the consultation is going to drive an awful lot of the thinking there in terms of whether you are just offering choices to everybody or whether you are focusing in other ways on trying to identify which members are, are likely to be impacted and which are not. So it's going to be a more complicated picture for the other schemes. But for LGPS, we're certainly recommending that assessments are carried out now and data collection is focused on those that really need it. Great. In which case, I think um, we'll move on to the final topic of the day, which is the impact of coronavirus on recovery plans and deficit repair contributions. Now, there was an analysis by the pensions regulator uh, of its most recent annual funding statement. Yeah, I had to grapple, as I understand it, with the difficulty that because coronavirus emerged between the two most common months in which schemes undertake valuations, December and March, they had to, I think, project for those which occurred, valuations which occurred before coronavirus, what would they would have looked like had they occurred after coronavirus and found in any case that the median required increase uh, in deficit repair contributions would be around 50 to 75% if they're to meet their current uh, recovery plans. Now, obviously, that won't be affordable to a great many employers, um, as I think somebody told me when I was writing on this last time. In fact, you'll probably see a lot of employers looking to cut contributions in the short term, if anything. Linda, I think this is probably in your area specifically. We know that schemes probably can't afford to pony up an extra 75% in deficit repair contributions. What, what are the possible outcomes of this? Well, what options do schemes have who can't afford to pay even their current rate? Is, this, is it just a, a 
perennially longer recovery plan that we're looking for? Or are there other things that they might be able to do? I think it's worth bearing in mind that this is with a backdrop, not only of the economic environment, but also a backdrop of the pension regulator working towards the new funding code. Now, that's currently under consultation at the moment, but I think it's worth bearing that in mind when thinking about the solutions and how popular they will be. I think absolutely we may see some longer recovery plans. We may see some recovery plans that are even, you know, back end loaded where there is a need for cash right now, but otherwise a, you know, stronger ongoing business. We may see outperformance uh, allowances in recovery plans. So there are a number of levers there to make the numbers add up. But what we're trying to think about from a trustee perspective is, but how secure is that money? How likely am I to get it? So it's then a question of saying, what else can I have that will give me security if I can't have cash? So that broad area of alternative financing or contingent assets, I think will have more focus at this latest round of valuations, particularly to to bridge that kind of gap. Now, I think you've got a very different situation if you've got an employer who is truly in distress from perhaps a group who are in the middle where there's cash constraints, but not necessarily a poor long term view of the employer. And actually, at the other end of the spectrum, you've potentially also got some with strong funding positions who are actually looking well protected, well hedged, and didn't see huge drops in their funding level, even in that worst point in March. So quite a lot of different scenarios and really important for people to work through what's right for their scheme and their employer covenant. Um, And as I say, plenty of tools in the toolbox to, to draw upon. The other one is hope to draw upon, which might sound like a slightly odd thing to say, but actually thinking about post valuation experience. So particularly for those valuations that were at the end of March when equity markets were looking very challenged, actually looking at what has happened since the valuation date. And although uh, having to deal with a deficit at the valuation date, you can feel a lot more comfortable, for example, taking account of outperformance in a recovery plan if you've actually already seen that outperformance. Having said that, hope is not a a, a very permanent and definite solution. So you do need to think about what you're going to do if post-valuation experience does not come to your rescue as well. Oh, I was just about to say we should absolutely end on the hope, but maybe maybe that's an unwise place in which to end. Morris, did, did you have a take on this area? I've been speaking to some people previously who said that you know, tr- this whole event is forcing trustees in particular to become much more deeply involved with the businesses and their sponsors. And that, that, that requires them to get to grips with a lot of things that they previously hadn't, balance sheets and all kinds of banking covenant statements and all the rest and I imagine there's, I suppose, a slight data link there as well, because you've got, you know, these things come in the form of data broadly defined. I mean, are there tools available to help trustees get to grips with some of these new issues? Is that something that you, you're happy to comment on? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, generally speaking, almost all the work that I get involved in is aimed in some shape or form at, at trying to create a better valuation of the liabilities that, that a pension scheme has. And no matter what trustees' imminent objectives are or sponsors' objectives are, if they want to do anything, if they want to transfer any risk, if they want to look at the options open to them, 
if they're heading into PPF assessment, all those routes have huge demands on data because data just isn't in most pension schemes, most defined benefit pension schemes with history. It is just not in the right state to actually enable you to answer the questions that you need to answer to take the actions that you need to take. And some of the discussions we've been having recently have been off the back of the, the new regulations on consolidation, which is, again, yet another option that is going to be open to trustees, but the data needs to be in, in a state that enables them to be able to take those options should they wish to do so. It, it definitely all comes back to data. There's very little new in the sort of the problems world of pensions data. Hopefully, there's plenty of new solutions out there that are going to help everyone prepare and, and be better able to take advantage of the options they need to. Well, we certainly hope so, because it gives us things to write about. So at the very least, it'll keep me in employment if there are new solutions offered. Fingers crossed for that. This brings us to the final section, which I think is our always a pensions angle. Um, Linda, did you say beforehand that you, you'd found one of these for us? Uh, yes, absolutely. So last month, uh, a lady called Irene Triplett died aged 90. So, well, let me go back to the start of the story over 150 years earlier. Mrs. Triplett fought for both the Confederacy and the Union at different times in the American Civil War, which began in 1861 and ended in 1865. Then, in 1885, he applied for his Union War pension, which he was granted. In 1924, he was a childless widower and remarried. And actually, big age gaps weren't rare in the Great Depression when you'd got a Civil War veteran with a pension and a need for care. Although I'm not quite sure whether care was what was on his mind as he went on to have five children between his late 70s and late 80s. Mm -hmm. Irene was born in 1930 and unfortunately, uh, due to disability, was actually eligible to inherit her father's pension. And it was that pension that was still paying out over 150 years after it accrued at the rate of $877.56 a year up until her death last month. So there's a long tail to pension promises. Uh, there is indeed. Uh, that's probably the, the longest of them I've heard so far. I'm still baffled as to how somebody can go from fighting from the Confederacy to the Union in the same war. But um, maybe he got double the benefits for so doing. But who knows? That was great. In which case, thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you to our listeners for their listening. We'll be back in two weeks' time and we will see you then. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.